Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome Nora Noose, a freelance journalist and Emmy-nominated producer and writer. In 2017, Nora field-produced Anderson Cooper's CNN coverage of the 2017 Charlottesville white nationalist riots. Her new book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy, gives a gripping account of these events as told by the people who were there. Nora shares the stories of activists, faith leaders, students, city officials, and others whose recollections and insights bring those horrific 24 hours into focus. Today, Nora shares with me the details of compiling an oral history, the reasons she didn't interview white supremacists for this book, and what things surprised her as she sat down to have these conversations. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for August is You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweke Amezi, which we will discuss on August 30th with Sam Sanders. Reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Want more of The Stacks? You can join The Stacks Pack over on Patreon. It's just $5 a month, and when you join, you have access to our monthly virtual book club hangs, The Stacks Pack Discord, and The Stacks bonus episodes. Plus, you get to know that your support makes the show possible. So head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. Shout out to our newest members of The Stacks Pack, Liz Winter Alvarado, Kelsey Kennedy, Leanna Stone Bradley, Chelsea Hannafin, and Sakia Talbert. Thank you all so much for joining, and thank you again to the entire Stacks Pack. I say this all the time, but it is 1000% true. There would be no The Stacks without the support of The Stacks Pack on Patreon. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Nora Noose. All right, everybody, I am thrilled. I'm joined by Nora Noose, who is the author of 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy. And if you are listening to this show, you know, I fucking love oral history. And this one, it did not disappoint. It is slim, but holy cow, it packs a punch. Nora, welcome to the stacks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. So just for folks, I I think that the title of the book is like very self-explanatory, but I always start here. So in about 30 seconds or so, will you tell people about your book? Sure. So the book is the story behind the news reports that most people saw of the 2017 white nationalist riot in Charlottesville, Virginia. 
Um, and it really does take readers moment by moment through the main 24 hours of, of that day, which started actually Friday afternoon, August 11th, with the photos of those uh, and videos of, of that torch rally um, of, of white nationalists and neo-Nazis carrying flaming torches through the University of Virginia's campus through the end of the day on Saturday. Um, but it's also a bit of a misnomer because the book also does cover this larger context of white supremacy and racism within Charlottesville, um, but also within America. Where did you get the idea to write the book and and more specifically in this way as an oral history? So August 12th, 2017, I was in Charlottesville. I was there for about a week. And I would say August 17th, I had the idea to write an oral okay. history of what happened. And um, I actually pitched a story. I was working at CNN at the time, and I pitched a story to CNN to write a short kind of online oral history at that point of how the local news media was covering uh, August 12th and, and how they were impacted. And it, the pitch was rejected. <laughs> so I never wrote that story. But I always had that idea in the back of my head. Um, there's there's an incredible, incredible oral history of 9-11 called The yes. Only Plane in the Sky. We did it on the show. Okay. Love Garrett M. Graff, hero. Ph- phenomenal, yes. So, phenomenal. Yes, ph- absolutely phenomenal. And I read the Politico article that it was based on um, okay. years earlier. And then the book came out recently, and I knew Garrett through CNN. And so there was that right, right, kind of right. overlap. And you know, I, we can talk about this more, but I actually ran into him. I knew who he was. He had no idea who I was, to be clear. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I, at the time, um, but I ran into him, slash stalked him a little bit outside of the green room one day after I decided <laughs> to officially write this book <laughs> and just said, hi, um, I'm writing this book. And um, it's kind of basically like based on your book. Um, do you have any advice? And he was like very gracious and we talked through stuff and that started kind of this friendship that, that he's been so lovely. He wrote a review for the book um, and it's he's just been such a nice wonderful. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I really loved him. I mean, similarly to you, not to talk about Garrett, not to gush about Garrett, but I read the book being like, oh, I'll read this. We'll see. And then I loved it so much that I was like, he must come on the podcast, which is exactly what I did with your book. And He's been so kind ever since. He always talks about how much he loves the show and like always he's just like a really nice guy. And he gave a great interview. And I just I that book for people who even are like remotely interested in oral history between 24 hours in Charlottesville and the only plane in the sky. If you like American recent American history and having a lot of anxiety as you read, I highly recommend both of the books. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I feel like as I was reading your book, I was like, oh, my God, I hate Nora and I love Nora. And mostly I hate the police was the big one for me. But we'll mm-hmm. get there. Don't worry. OK. Why did you want to tell this story like so soon after it's happened? It's funny that you say so soon, because I think in a lot of ways, I feel like, oh, my gosh, six years have passed. And right. I think a big part of why. I wanted to write the book was it felt like we already as a society were forgetting what mm-hmm. happened or maybe we mm-hmm. never really knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. President Trump made his both sides comments about the white nationalists a couple of days later. And that's what drove the news source. That's what, that's what drove the, the news cycle. And mm. 
our public memory of the event. And then the incredible uh, Vice documentary uh, came out that gave this unprecedented look into the white nationalists side of the story, which we will also, I imagine, get to. Um, But there really hadn't been a definitive account from the activist perspective. Part of that is because it was a real challenge to get activists to be willing to talk about what happened because there were some very real safety and security concerns and some really serious trust, you know, rightly so, trust issues with the media. But but to go back to your question, I think I saw my peers in national media and mainstream media not necessarily understanding what really happened in Charlottesville Mm. that day and that summer, especially in the proper context. This was not a story of white nationalists coming out of nowhere and surprising the town and then overrunning town and then, oh, no, we didn't know. And that is not what happened. Mm -hmm. It is also wrong to say, oh my gosh, this was, this isn't Charlottesville. These are people from outside of town. Sure. Okay. Most of the white nationalists that day perpetrating violence were from out of town, but Charlottesville has a long history of racism and of white supremacy. Right. Um, And so I think correcting some of, of the record around those questions and also for myself and for my own understanding of what happened uh, was, was really a big part of the motivation. Um, I'm going to, I don't know. You've said a lot of things I wanted to talk about later in the interview. So I'm going to just pick one and go there and then we'll circle back yeah. to whatever. But I want to start with just the language. So in the beginning of the book, you kind of tell us like a little bit about your process. You give us a little intro. You clarify some things about, you know, what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. And you talk about like, you, so like, for example, there are some parks in Charlottesville that have had name changes since the events in 2017. And so you said like, we're going to call them these names, like, we're not going to call them the old names, we're not going to call them the newest, newest names, we're going to call them, you know, like, whatever. So you had to make some editorial decisions. And one of the things you talk about is the language used around the white nationalists and how some people call them Nazis, and some people call them white supremacists, and some people call them fascists and whatever. And you stuck with that language with whatever people use. But was that like, how difficult was that decision for you around how to name those people I guess at all. Cause I was shocked that it was in there, I think is what my question is. Like I thought, I assumed you would just use whatever people said, but I'm mm. wondering why it was something you wanted to like call attention to. Specifically. That's interesting. Yeah. It actually was very difficult. Um, and I think language, I mean, I'm probably biased. I'm a writer, but <laughs> language has an enormous power in sanitizing white supremacy and, and hate. Um, mm-hmm. And we saw this, we see this in Charlottesville. We've seen this throughout history, but it, for the white nationalist movement, for example, white nationalism is a term coined by the white supremacists. It was coined by mm-hmm. Richard Spencer, uh, who was a UVA alum, who uh, was attempting to oversimplification, but make it okay to be racist and said, well, I'm not a white supremacist. I'm a white nationalist. And that was a right. way of, of sanitizing their position. Um, right. I had some run-ins with some of these guys. I didn't write about this in the book because it was kind of outside the purview, but I, I was at a, a big white nationalist gathering covering it, but a year later and 
said something kind of in anger, which I'm not supposed to do as a journalist, but I was having this conversation with a white nationalist um, and said something about you're a white supremacist. Like you, you just, you are a white supremacist. And he got really mad at me and was like, I am not. And, and I think, and I think truly believed what he was saying. He's like, well, I'm not, I just want, and then went on a rant that I'm not going to repeat about uh, what he saw as lack of equality and opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so the language is also used as a recruiting tactic. Um, if we don't call these people racists, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, which many of them were wearing t-shirts with swastikas and Hitler on them, uh, and hate groups, then we aren't being accurate in describing them. And at the same time, those words all mean different things. Mm -hmm. The language is important and is not a small thing. And it really does play into how these groups are perceived. So if you hadn't stuck with the language that people in the book used to describe them, was the other option to just every time someone said neo-Nazi or white supremacist to just insert white nationalist? Like what was your other option going to be? There wasn't a great one. The, the okay. term, yeah, <laughs> the term that I do not use um, without a qualification is alt-right. Uh, the alt-right is a co-opting and a complete obfuscation of of what these people believe. Um, So that is a term that I I don't use, but I did allow people to use. um, Got it. When I'm talking about it myself, just in conversation, and I think as you will see in this conversation, sometimes I will use words interchangeably or Mm -hmm. or to mean different things. But a lot of the book, the process in terms of the oral history was – allowing people to have the most agency and telling their own story while at the same time, not allowing someone to lie. Um, right. Using language is a gray area, but those are all conversations I was having with myself. <laughs> right. Okay. This is my big question. And I think probably every interview you do will ask you some version of this question, which is in the introduction you lay out, we're going to hear from all sorts of voices, but you purposely did not put any voices from the neo-Nazi white supremacist, white nationalist faction. And, and because you didn't want to give like oxygen to their ideas and their thinking, et cetera, sort of how you laid it out. Like they've had enough attention in the media and you didn't want to give them. But my question for you is why not include their voices, but not uh, not their opinions, but like logistically to like help lay the scene? Or did you feel like as a human being, you didn't want to have to sit down and listen to the rest and then like have to edit through it to get like, we turned left on State Street? Like... Because I, I, I just, I'm just, I'm really curious about like how you made that decision and, and maybe what you felt like that would add to the book and also maybe what you felt like you would lose in the book by omitting those voices. Yeah. So the boundary I drew for myself and that I would recommend that other journalists draw is I used white nationalists, uh, white supremacist language and words that they had written or published that have already been out there. So from court cases, uh, things caught on video that they have said, um, some of the leaked Discord chats. um, But I did not go out and interview any and do do my own um, interviews with them for this project. I have spoken to white nationalists plenty uh, before, (laughs) more than than, um, I would like to. Um, But... This is a this is a very 
um, kind of key tenet of anti-fascism, which is that to platform fascists in, in almost any way is counteractive to the collective project of overcoming fascism. And that's a lot of big words to say, like, they like it when we interview them. Got it. So it's also not even about what we publish necessarily. It's like, oh, well, an Emmy-nominated journalist came today to talk to me about my views. And they can use that as their own recruiting tool, and their own propaganda tool. And then no matter what we publish, even if I just was publishing logistical information, right, it would turn into, I guarantee you, propaganda of, well, look how well organized we were. We really navigated quite well. And it's right. like, that wouldn't further the book in mm-hmm. my from my perspective, that wouldn't make the book any more interesting or or um, or more accurate. Um, and I did quote from them where I had to um, right. from things that were already out there, but I'm not creating fresh material for them. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, you mentioned and throughout the book, there's a few activists who use like their initials instead of their names and stuff. And you mentioned like it's for their own safety. And I don't know if this you you don't have to answer this if this is not safe. But what are the safety concerns about speaking to you about a book like this? Like, what are the still current six year later fears in the activist community in Charlottesville around what happened? Yeah, I mean, on a on a very yeah, don't do details, but like yeah, well, no, no, but I will, but but from a very like uh, hypothetical specific example they're worried that someone is going to show up at their house with a shotgun and kill them and their children in front of them. I mean, like that, that is the worry. The worry is, is right. But, but just because they spoke to you or who would be defining information. So there was, um, mm, I know it's kind of hard to talk about it without talking about it. (laughs) There was one person, individual who in the course of telling the story mentioned a family member that they had not previously disclosed was there. And originally, I think this is also goes back to like the kind of the responsibility of, of journalism in my position. They got so into telling me the story of what happened that they didn't realize that it wasn't until after the fact where I was like, Hey, I'm looking into this more and I'm realizing you've never said that before. I just want to like flag that. And then we're inc- incredibly concerned. Um, got it. So there's things like that, but there also are continued threats to activists. This is not something that's like over. It took years for the statues uh, to be resolved. Right. The um, try the federal trial against um, Jason Kessler only finished about a year ago. Um, there are still very active threats um, to a lot of these activists. Some of them have had to spend time in safe houses. Some of them have had their addresses and phone numbers, certainly phone numbers. Um, but but home addresses posted on uh, white nationalist forums. So there's a, there's very real concerns. Yikes. Um, how did you find your subjects and on the people you spoke to? And also you mentioned that you pay them and I guess that's standard practice in oral history. So can you talk about you know how you found that? But also as a journalist who doesn't pay your subjects, what if you noticed maybe a difference in the kinds of conversations you were able to have when there was 
exchange of money. Um, we talk a lot about on this. We've had a lot of journalists on the show and we talk a lot about like the ethics of journalism and almost every journalist is like, it's not great. Like there's there's some question marks um, certain times. So I'm just curious if, if you did notice anything or anything stood out to you about about paying someone versus not. Yeah. So I found a lot of people because I was a local news reporter in Charlottesville. I had a lot of these contacts and sources already. And then there was a kind of a network effect, especially when word got out that I was working on this project, that people were willing to talk to me. On paying people, I had never paid a source for anything, for information, for anything while I was a journalist, while I am a journalist, as a journalist. Um, But that is common practice in oral history interviews, mostly because and this is, I can get on a whole soapbox here, but oral history is an indigenous tradition that is, by its kind of definition, a way of passing down stories among people who may not have access to other means or who historically did not have access to other means. And a lot of the people that I was interviewing were people who work multiple jobs, who don't have uh, free time that's sitting around, um, people who don't have access to other methods of telling their story. They're not getting booked on CNN. Mm -hmm. And also so many projects have come through Charlottesville. So many journalists have come through Charlottesville asking for people's unpaid labor Mm. that often falls on women of color and especially amongst this activist uh, group. And so I was starting to feel ethically weird about the idea of not compensating people when I was asking for hours and hours of their time to relive one of the most traumatic moments of their life. That said, I did not see a single difference Hmm. in the conversations with folks that I paid or didn't pay. Um, Because we should say you didn't pay politicians. I did not pay to politicians. There was a couple... um, there were quite quite a few actually um, folks who, uh, and I think I mentioned this in the introduction to the book, um, donated their um, pay to a nonprofit or something if they felt like they didn't want to take it or directed it toward other survivors. And I was very clear upfront that I was compensating them for their time. Mm-hmm. They still had no ability to dictate what I put in the book. Right. They still had to tell me the truth. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, that's a larger conversation too, of like, when is someone telling you the truth and what is the truth? And we can get into that. But they were still not going to see a transcript before it published. They were not going to get a recording of their call with me. They were not going to get any access beyond the the conversation. Um, and so I think setting those boundaries was really important. Mm-hmm. But no, I I didn't see any difference other than there were certain individuals who straight up said I had to like take off two hours of work for this. And I like, wouldn't have been able to do that mm. if you weren't paying me mm. my time. So I ended up with a greater diversity of voices. Were there any people that you tried to get that you couldn't get? Yes. There were a lot of people that I wanted and I couldn't get. And there were even more people who offered and who I didn't have bandwidth and space for. I mean, I could have interviewed thousands of people for this book. Right. Um, the big one was the chief of police. For, I would have loved to hear from him. Was waiting yes. for him. <laughs> yes. I have a uh, 
a mail tracker on my email so I can see when people have opened my my emails. Oh. And he dev I mean he read he absolutely read my email multiple times and received it and so that did was you, one. Did you try to get Biden or Trump? I didn't. And that was also a discussion. President Trump is mentioned extremely uh few, few times, times if yeah. any in the book. I think he's mentioned once or twice as just the idea of this animating principle and context around what happened. But the both sides comment was not made until like days later. And I really wanted to focus on that period of what actually happened. Right. August 11th and 12th. Right. I was only thinking that because I know that like Biden, you know, he wasn't obviously there, but we know that he watched live or whatever. And and that's like the thing that inspired him to run for the presidency. Allegedly. I don't know if that meets your truth test or not. (laughs) Doesn't personally meet mine. But I just wasn't sure if there was any like, oh, I'd love to hear from people who weren't there, but maybe were watching from a distance or something like that. Yes. And I definitely have that thought interviewing, you know, descendants of Holocaust survivors who are watching it on TV Mm. or uh, victims of other domestic terror attacks watching it on TV, national journalists in their control rooms and newsrooms seeing mm. it play out and making decisions in real time. And in the end, I decided to focus more narrowly just because I could have written this book a million different ways. Yeah, And totally. I could have written it, uh, it. I mean, so my first draft was almost four times as long as this book. <laughs> oh my and God. yeah, uh, which I knew was too long, but <laughs> I went right. for it. Um, and that was my editor, my, my editor, Catherine Tung at, at Beacon Press, very specifically said, this is the word count I want you to hit. Mm. This is such a, a, a hard thing to read about. Mm-hmm. Y- you got you got a little snippet of people's time and mental energy here and you want to keep it moving. And so it was way shorter than I would have would have done. So it feels more like a representative sampling than it Mm -hmm. does a thorough everyone's perspective retelling. I will say this, and people who know me and know the show will understand that this is one of the highest compliments I can pay someone. Okay. I actually wish this book was longer. Wow. And I never want, I mean, I I loved it. I think it, I, I personally think it is the perfect length for 99% of people. I like dark, fucked up American history moment. So for uh-huh. me, I'm like, I could have done four times longer just because I like I read all three Waco books this year. Like I'm yeah. just mm-hmm. it, that's who I am. But I was like, I could I could do like six months after Charlotte. So I could do like, where were they oh now? Like gosh. I could have done yeah. like, <laughs> but the point is, it's that good. It's the exact perfect length, I think, for Thank basically you. everyone else. And I think your editor was smart to tell you that. But I did when I finished the book, I was like, could have done more. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like flashed and burned. I went through with a red pen and just. Well, I think that's right. Ruthless. It Because it, it's such an intense reading experience. And I can only imagine for you, I guess that is a question that I have for you. Like, how did you take care of yourself? Because you, you know, every single person you interviewed and you, you yourself lived through this day locally in Charlottesville because you were there. But there's my assumption would be there's something different between living through an experience one time that that you see versus carrying 30, 40, 50 people's experience of this one day? Like, how were you able or were you able to take care of yourself as you were hearing all of this stuff and then kind of digesting it and 
cutting it and putting it all together. I mean, you're spending hours and hours with this material, but it's not easy. So what were you doing for you? Should have done more. Uh, <laughs> I, will, I will say that. Um, so I was in Charlottesville this weekend, um, but I only arrived after the bulk of okay. uh, the fighting. I arrived in town after Heather was killed. And uh, my memories of the weekend are extremely triggering and traumatic, especially my memories from earlier in that summer and, and the kind of year leading up to this when a lot of the conversation was going on, but nothing near what people, other people experienced. Okay. Um, that said, I mean, just on a personal level, like two weeks into writing this book, my nightmares came back about mm. August 12th and I hadn't had nightmares about it in years. Um, that was something I thought I had like kind of worked through. Um, so that was alarming. <laughs> that was alarming. That was like two weeks in. I was like, oh, okay, we have, we have, we have a while to go. But I think there is something really powerful about being to, able to confront it head on mm-hmm. and feel the importance and the depth of the story and the trauma of the community. Mm. and I had a lot of folks, I mean, almost everyone broke down in tears while we were talking. Multiple people had panic attacks while we mm. were talking, like more than one person had a full-blown panic attack while we were talking. Um, I am not a mental health professional. Um, I need the help of mental health professionals, but I am not one myself. And I think that was hard because I wanted to prioritize their mental health absolutely first and above any you know book like of course um but almost every time when I offered to stop people said they wanted to keep going Hmm. and that it felt cathartic a lot of them said you know I've never been able to afford therapy so I've never been to therapy but like this feels like it Hmm. and again I would say okay but like (laughs) I'm not a mental health (laughs) professional so like um but there was something like really, I think, healing and powerful about talking about it and thinking about it. And I think also like reclaiming the narrative to a certain effect. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of successes in the anti-racist activist counter-protest. I wish there had been more. We all do. Um, but there are still lessons to take away from this about how to prevent this from happening again. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have 
considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Okay, we're back. You mentioned this, you brought this up a few times, this like idea of truth and not wanting people to lie to you and not letting people lie to you. And there are parts in the book where someone says something that maybe is disputed or like their memory, you know, it's not an intentional lie, but then in bold underneath, you're like, well, they were actually on this street or like, well, actually, that was six months later, whatever. Not actually that. But you have these like, hi, I'm Nora. I'm here to let you know maybe what they said isn't exactly correct. Um, or or maybe it's like, but someone else remembered this differently or whatever. How did you decide what was truth? Were there times where you would interview someone and they would say, I went to the store and I bought chicken and then someone else would be like, we had salmon for dinner. And then you went back to that person and they were like, okay, Sam said we had salmon. Like what's going on here? Like how much were you going back to people and kind of trying to get to the bottom of things or just like editing things out that you were like, well, that's not what happened. And, and did you push back on people if you felt like they were lying to you? Like, because it sounds like truth was really important to you. So how did you navigate that? I, I definitely pushed back and I definitely kind of tried to d- dig deeper. I think very few people were outright lying to okay. me. I think there were questions of legitimately of memory from five years earlier at the point where I was. And a uh, traumatic event. And a traumatic event. Exactly. Um, when memories may not be that strong. A lot of people I interviewed said, where, you know, recall, recalled exact details and words and phrases that someone said to them and that they said, and then they have a 20 minute chunk that's black. And then they remember right, instantly right, right. more. So that, that kind of thing happened a lot. Um, but I think there's also this instinct from people who have told the same story multiple times. So 
especially like journalists, um, unfortunately fall into this, um, politicians, public mm-hmm. figures, mm-hmm. people who have recounted the story multiple times where what you're saying becomes truth, not because you're trying to lie, but because you've said it so many times and you think you remember something. And, and when I came across some of those moments and I kind of drilled down of like, okay, but like in an interview the day after you said X, Y, and Z, since then you've described it this other way, but like the day of Mm. you said, whatever, um, was a really helpful exercise. I think sometimes for the people, even that I was interviewing, because a lot of times they would say like, Oh, I actually, huh? Like, let me think about that. Hmm. Um, and then there were definitely a certain times where people just did lie to me uh, certain politicians <laughs> and I proved it. <laughs> but I think for the most part, everything in the book is fact checked to the extent that no one is factually incorrect. I didn't let anyone be factually incorrect to a degree that I knew about that wasn't unchallenged and wasn't checked. But there are places where multiple people remember a situation differently, differently, right? And where that is allowed to exist in that tension. Yeah, and I think you do a good job in a lot of those places of like putting those differing memories or differing opinions side by side, so that the reader can like see that. Because I think that's helpful as a reader to know, like this isn't undisputed fact this is memory opinion perspective um so i i find that i always find that really helpful in oral history when like things are kind of stacked on top of each other where it's like you know okay we don't all agree but the general like there are some things that we do all agree on and that's also you know in here Um, that was something i actually had a lot of that, that i cut out of this longer draft I had way more of multiple people saying the same thing because I felt like it was important to prove that or like show that. And that was a huge amount of what I cut was Mm. if I know it's true, let them, let it be true and I'll flag the stuff that isn't true, but I don't need to, you know, have five people saying they were on X street. Right. Right. I feel like for me, I mean, the part that, it was the most powerful and like that really stuck with me and made like all my little hairs on my arms stand up. I was taking a bath. I like to read in the bath, especially when it's like an intense thing. And I was like in the bath getting cold because I'd been there like reading the whole book. And I was like, I want to finish. But when you get to the part with the car that culminates, you know, in the murder of Heather Heyer and the injury of so many people, a lot of the people that we've been following this entire time end up you know, on that street kind of blocked in when the car comes down and there's this part where you like everybody's talking about the sound or like what they hear and like this like rumbling and the boom. And it's just like, so I'm getting chills right now. It is so visceral and it is so terrifying as a reader six years later. And I know what happened, right? Like, it's not like this is a surprise. This isn't a novel. Like I've seen the images I've seen, you know, But just like the way that you put it all together and like took the it's like a lot of the lines are just like three words from this person or like a sentence from this person or just like boom, boom, boom or whatever. And like, I mean, I'm like getting hot, (laughs) like overwhelmed. But like, I understand why you cut it because it adds to the book. But when you do do it, it is just so it's so powerful. So like, I think I think you 
did a really good job of like deciding when to have that kind of emphasis and when when not to. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, of course, of course. It deserves praise. Um, I want to talk about the police. Okay. You know, I don't know that this is a spoiler. I think given all the images we've seen from that weekend, police weren't really present in a way that was helpful to mitigate antagonism. And I, and not to be Trump, but I will say on both sides, they could have been protecting or preventing on either side at a certain point. Like they were just sort of standing around, right? Like not that either, not that the activist side needed, you know, they were within their rights, but I just mean like they could have at some point stepped in between both sides or like, you know, they could have not, done anything. They could have done anything. That's what I mean. Again, I'm not actually Trump. Fuck white nationalists, supremacists, etc. You all know the vibe. Um, but they could have done anything. They could have stepped in. They did not. You don't get to talk. We don't get to hear from the chief of police, as you mentioned. Um, there's also a city manager who is not my favorite person on the face of the earth, certainly. Um, but I guess the bigger question is. After all of this, after seeing all this, three years later, we get to summer 2020. There's all these protests. There's all this activism around race, around the death of George Floyd, but also like, I think, some pent up emotion and and things from from Charlottesville, from having, you know, from Trump's presidency, from the 1930s. Like there's there's a lot of racial, you know, built up shit in America. And it really comes bubbling up in 2020. And I'm wondering, as a person who is working on this book at that time, I think you said you started, you know, thinking about this book. So at least it's in your mind. What do you feel like all of this, given this framework, says to you about policing, like did did you feel like you learned a lesson in reporting this? Do you feel like there was something that like changed in your relationship to the police or anything like that? I don't know. It's sort of a crazy, weird question, but there's something there in my brain. I think what's hard to answer about that is that unfortunately we have seen, and I have seen so many other instances of police brutality, like uh, I'm not surprised. And, and and I guess maybe that's what I would say is that this is a form of police brutality. Right. Inaction in the face of extreme beating of counter protesters. I think uh, I've never really said it that strongly, but I think I believe that. I think that that is a form of police brutality and mm-hmm. police violence um, in protecting, choosing who you protect and who you do not. And I cannot imagine a teeming mass of people of color on the streets of downtown Charlottesville. Of course not. Yeah. Allowed to, I mean, get there in the first place. Right. I mean, that's that crazy story of the guy who has the fire and is in the picture, the black guy. Mm-hmm. Corey Long, yeah. Yeah. And and for people who remember um, the weekend and, and the images from television, Corey is friends with the the guy who ends up getting beaten in the parking lot, which is like one of the most that was one of the things I remember most about that weekend before reading mm-hmm. the book. Um, but it's two black guys and there's like a aerosol can and some fire and he's like kind of spraying it in the direction yeah, of they're like a homemade flamethrower. Yes. Which sounds more intense than it was. It was an aerosol can of I think it was hairspray, but don't quote me on that, and a flame. 
Yeah. Right. And he's like spraying it at a group of like white nationalists headed his way. And there's a gun shot involved in this moment. But there's a picture that gets taken. Fired by a by white the white supremacist. Yeah, clear. exactly. Sorry, fired by yeah. the white nationalist. But this yeah. picture is of Corey holding the flamethrower towards the white nationalists, and he gets in trouble by the law. Yeah. <laughs> so that is is absurd and ridiculous. To go a step farther, DeAndre Harris, who is the friend in the parking garage who was beaten and bloodied within an inch of his life, truly almost died that day, was later charged with disorderly I forget and I should I should I should know this exactly it was charged with a crime later and there was a big public outcry related to that incident he was the only one that was charged and that was a it, the, the charges ended up being dropped and there was a, a big public outcry on that um but who we choose to police right the only two women arrested that day the only two people arrested that day were two women who had their tits out to protest, like a counter-protesters. That's insane. Were, I know that there was a big trial um, about like liability, right? Like who, like were Who's the white nationals responsible for this? Similarly to January 6th, were a lot of people, white nationalists who were there, were they arrested ever? Like, was there a fallout from not the organizers, but the like everyday Nazis in there? Yeah, so... Everyday Nazis. That's uh, sad. Um, but yes, there was this kind of uh, citizen-led justice movement, just like there was after January 6th, where people were literally just tweeting pictures of these guys saying, like, someone has to know this guy. Here's another angle of him. Got oh, it. someone's daughter's kid, like, knows that guy. And then they would report them to their workplaces. Some of them would get arrested. I don't think all that many have gotten arrested. I should double check on that at this point where it stands six years later. But for I mean, for a period of time later, they were still being um, kind of found and tracked down. People were losing their jobs. And there were also others who weren't and then were storming the Capitol on January 6th. Is that is there like are there people who were both yes. places? Yeah. Yes. There is a Charlottesville city employee who was a January 6th uh, writer, an IT employee in charge of the computer systems in Charlottesville. And when the city found out, they did not fire him. It wow. said it was his first amendment right. That's fine. So, yeah. I, as I said, I'm very interested in recent American history that involves dark, dark times. And I followed this closely because I have a friend in Virginia. Like I was watching, he was like, there's something going on. Like you should pay attention. So I was paying attention day of, days of, both days. Something that I completely missed in this story was the helicopter. Yes. Can you tell folks about that? Yes. Okay. So this is part of the story that is where it goes from weird to like really weird. So from the, from the perspective of the local media and the media that day, we get this call. So Heather's been killed. Things are starting to die down. We get this call that the helicopter transporting the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, has crashed. He's coming to town for a press conference, which we knew, and the helicopter has crashed. And we, I mean, I was texting with my journalist friends at the local station, which I had quit like a month earlier, and they were scrambling crews out to go cover that. There was a good 20 minutes where we genuinely thought the governor of Virginia had just been killed. And it seemed crazy to think that 
someone had shot down the plane, the helicopter, but also like not that crazy. Like they just killed someone on the street. Um, and they had been weaponed. They were heavily armed. Yeah, they were heavily. I mean, they could. I think they could yeah, have. They could. They could have. Um, I don't think that's like that far of a stretch. And what I didn't know going into this, but all of the aides and the governor's wife were all calling him, trying to call him, and no one could get through to him. Which, of course, contributed to the fact that everyone thought he was dead. Turned out. It was a different helicopter. It was a Virginia State helicopter. It was kind of like Air Force One where like whatever helicopter the guy's traveling in is his helicopter. It had So he had traveled in this other helicopter before. His helicopter was fine. He landed, got to the ground, and realized that he had been calling and following the news so much all day that his cell phone died on the helicopter. <laughs> and he saw it twice, so he wasn't answering it. I had no idea that there were like this this was happening um and ended up being totally fine and kind of this like footnote in history that these and and i mean two virginia state police officers were killed in that crash um but it was not shot down it was just mechanical error mechanical error just like a wild coincidence that brought like more sort of fear and anxiety to a day that was filled with that um, okay, we're going to do sort of like, well, I guess this is one question. Is there anything that's not in the book that you wish was? Mm. I mean, I think there's a a whole other book to be written and that has been written many times over. Um, but about the legacy of Thomas Jefferson, uh, mm. I went to UVA. Mm. I was a Jefferson scholar. Uh, I you know went to Monticello a million times. I I took a a class on the history of UVA. I took a class on the history of Jefferson. I got A's. I had never read the line that I put in the beginning of the book where he is being, Jefferson is being blatantly white supremacist. Of course, we knew this. Like, I knew that. I knew the story of Sally Hemings. I knew, but it's it's not like you have to take take a leap. It's not like you have to take a jump. You don't have to take a, it's, it's not a leap from, he's just said it himself. Right. Like very explicitly. Um, and I just think there's there's more education that needs to happen there. Yeah. Did you, did you ever read Ibram Kendi's big book, Stamp from the Beginning? You know, he has oh, Thomas yeah. Jefferson as like one of his five yeah. pillars, like one of his architects. Um, yeah, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, bad dude. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. I know founding father, whatever. I'm black. doesn't really speak to me in the same way, but not a great guy. Um, I want to ask you about the cover. Sure. Can you walk folks kind of through it who haven't seen it yet and sort of explain like how it came to be or, or what you're, how, if you were part of the process or not? I was part of the process, probably in kind of an annoying way to the design team. <laughs> I, on my other books, and like I have always tried to be like, I'm not a designer. You guys do what you want to do. But I felt really strongly about this cover because the weapons have, the images have been so weaponized. Mm. And the terrifying photos of the white nationalists with their, their faces bathed in torchlight are often used as propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, the photo of the car attack, which my good friend Brian took and then ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize for, mm. uh, is the moment of death for Heather Heyer and uh, the moment of injury for so many others. Those images so often are used as 
shortcuts to say, oh, this is Charlottesville. Um, but also none, not one of those images represents the true, the truth mm-hmm. of what happened in Charlottesville. Um, I felt very strongly that we did not, I did not want to have a photo on the cover of the book. And I, and we have no photos in the book. There's not like a center fold of, you know, nice color photos from that, from that week. Um, and that was important in part to give readers coming into it a blank canvas to approach it. The one kind of not so funny, but maybe a little funny thing about the cover <laughs> is when I got it back, there's this, the, the cover is like a dark blue and has these big white chunky letters on the front. And there's this like design element in it that is an orange diamond. And that really is just a design element, something to give it some visual interest. But the number of times I have seen things either purposely or accidentally include white supremacist or neo-Nazi imagery in them, I was so scared. I spent, Mm -hmm. like, honestly, days looking through the entire, like, Southern Poverty Law Center, hate (laughs) group symbol database, talking to scholars, talking to Antifa members, just, like, triple, quadruple checking that either accidentally there wasn't some diamond that meant something but that also that there wasn't like a secret closeted white nationalist designing the cover of this book which (laughs) I don't know probably wasn't ever gonna happen but just in case you gotta be careful is the is the background image is that a picture of anything or is that also just like design it's just design it's all abstract got it um okay my favorite question how did you write this book? How many hours a day? How often? Music or no? Home, out, snacks, beverages, rituals. And then I guess for for this case, I'm assuming you taped the interviews. So did you go back and listen to them? Did you work off transcriptions? Like, how did this sort of come from these interviews to the page? And what were you doing to make that happen? I love this question because I'm always looking for ways to optimize my writing process. And to that end, I will say, I will never do it again this way. And I don't recommend it. Um, I was a local or a, sorry, not local anymore, but a a news producer at CNN for uh, almost six years. And I wrote this book while I was still working there. I got up at about 2am and worked my normal job from about 2am to noon, depending on the day. Um, I came home and sometimes would nap, uh, but often had to jump right into interviews and then did interviews from and wrote this book from noon to six, ate dinner and went to sleep at, you know, eight. Uh, Again, don't recommend that. Um, That shift was punishing. In terms of the actual writing of it, this is part of why I had a four times as long first draft. As I went after, I had a running timeline, a running document of the book from the very beginning. So day one, I had five quotes I knew I wanted to use. I put those in a document. Got it. Every time I found new stuff, I would just pop it in that one document. I would put everything in the same document where it kind of belonged. I would finish an interview. I would transcribe the whole thing. And then with both the recording and the transcription, would figure out what parts of it I wanted to put in the main document and I would put things in and then I would delete stuff as I went as I got as I kind of 
quote unquote upgraded as mm-hmm. I got something better to the same point. Um, but I just built out this kind of scaffolding for the whole story and then figured out what to do with it. After that. <laughs> okay. When you're working from 2 a.m. to 8 p.m., what are your snacks and beverages? I need to know. Uh, coffee. So much coffee. A lot of coffee. Black? Um, no, cream and sugar. Okay. Dunkin' Donuts. Coffee. Okay. okay. Um, and so this is kind of cheating. Um, my spouse is an incredible cook. Mm. Like, phenomenal cook. By trade or just passion? No, just passion. They're an attorney. Okay. Um, it's actually a great combination. They okay. work super hard and then they come home and make Come home dinner. and feed you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's great. I highly recommend it. Um, and so a lot of times I would finish these interviews at like five or six and would come out and they will have made me uh, full, incredible dinners that I don't have so to do no anything for. So not, not a big, no, but, but just like incredible dinners I didn't have to cook. That's, I do the dishes though. I do all the dishes. That's how we, that's the arrangement in my home, but I do the cooking and my husband does the dishes yeah. and all the cleaning. And it's the only way I'm like, I'm not making food. If you're not, if someone else isn't cleaning up, doesn't even have to be him. Could be anybody in the house could clean. Um, is there a word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? Acknowledgements. Ugh, impossible. Word. I had to spell two. It came up twice today. Twice. <laughs> It's like I'm I just it was so many extra K's and W's. I don't know. It's the W's for I'm like, why are you here? I don't need yeah. you. At the time of us talking, your book is not out in the world yet. But for folks listening at home, the book is out. Um, I think this episode is coming out right around the sixth anniversary of Charlottesville. So that's for people we're we're in this week. Um do you have any idea what comes next for you? Do you have another book you want to work on? Or are you like taking a break from writing for now? You do. I do. So this was, this is my second book published, but my third sold. Um, So my next book that's coming out is a young adult graphic novel, historical fiction, queer love story. Whoa. It is a departure. Departure. Um, (laughs) Yes. Um, and my first book was also very intense and very serious about the Syrian civil war and involved kids getting buried alive. And so I needed to do something fun. Um, then I went right back into trauma. But uh, this hits a really fun story. It's set in uh, 1888 New York City and tells the story of an undercover journalist, teen girl journalist, based on a true story, who infiltrates garment factories and exposes the horrific practices whoa triangle shirtwaist basically yeah so my part of that's completely done I mean I finished that like almost two years ago and our incredible illustrator Julie Rubin is finishing up the art so that will come out I believe it is about a year and a half away I think it's like winter 2025 so exciting okay well we'll keep people plugged in for when that happens for people who read 24 Hours in Charlottesville, who love it, what is another book that you might recommend to them that's in conversation with what you've created? Mm. So definitely uh, The Only Plane in the Sky is by Garrett Graff is just another phenomenal oral history. If that is a format that you're new to and that you're uh, excited about um, on a super nerdy 
academic level, which I won't necessarily recommend to everyone. Um, but there is a new book by a UVA professor out called Making Hashtag Charlottesville that just came out uh, in May and is this kind of draws these parallels between the media coverage of both Unite the Right, which was the name of the uh, August 12th uh, rally turned riot and the civil rights movement. And mm. there's a really interesting, a lot of really interesting parallels there. It's very academic. It's not at all like a fun narrative read. Um, but I just finished that. Um, and the author of that is um, it quoted in my book uh, as well. Okay. Last one. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? Mm. It's funny because I would say President Trump, except uh, number one, I don't think he could read the whole thing. Uh, mm -hmm. But number mm -hmm. two, I don't think it would help. Um, I think I think I would actually say Joe Biden. There was a lot of anger among Democrats in Charlottesville that he invoked their trauma and pain, having never visited Charlottesville mm. in running for office. And I would love for him to read the book. Okay. So everyone, this has been a conversation with Nora Noose. She is the author of 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy. You can get this book wherever you get your books. It is out in the world now. I cannot emphasize enough what a terrifying and thrilling read and also sort of just a fantastic piece of oral history. And I hope that you'll all read it and check it out. Um, Nora, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Nora for being our guest. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to Bev Rivero for making this episode possible. Don't forget, Sam Sanders will be here for the Stacks Book Club on August 30th, where we will discuss You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweke Amezi. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts or Spotify, leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram threads and TikTok, and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter slash X app and check out our website, the this episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Takira Jis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Thomas.